0: with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting-edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. So when you think about how boys, especially young boys behave, what comes to mind? Chances are, if you're like so many other people, Some form of aggressive behavior, fighting, rambunctious, too much energy. Turns out that so much of this is complete myth and so much also is not something that's actually um, you know a natural part of that experience, but it's learned, it's taught. So my guest today, Michael Reichert, is the founding director of the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls Lives at the University of Pennsylvania. And he is a clinical practitioner specializing in boys and men, who has also conducted extensive research around the world. And in his recent book, How to Raise a Boy, he shares really powerful stories and research about the behaviors and roles and expectations that we place on young boys and how that often locks them into ways of being that are destructive, not only in their own lives, but also potentially to their relationships in all parts of life and to society writ large. And in this conversation, we also address a number of societal myths and offer a, kind of a more constructive science-backed reframe. And at a time when we are all re-examining questions of gender, identity, behavior, and the way we bring ourselves to the world and our roles and teaching those who look to us as models of behavior and values, this topic has never been more important. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. I think the field that you've been practicing in clinically for decades now, I guess three and a half decades or so, and researching in is something that has sort of, you know, like it has met its match in the zeitgeist over the last few years. But I wanna take a step back in time with you. I'm curious how you actually got into your practice. I know a couple of months back, you actually published an op-ed in the New York Times. And in that piece, you relayed a pretty horrifying moment from when you are in high school. Would you share that with us? I would. Um...
1: Yeah, so I was attending an all boys urban school in my hometown, and I think I was somewhat naive as a boy. I hadn't been exposed to a lot of male violence prior to that, but uh, once in this bigger pond of a of a somewhat tough school, uh, boys from very different, many different walks of life. Uh, suddenly there were fights after school. And I remember the, I just have this vivid uh, visual memory of, you know, we wore white shirts to school and these boys that would bloody each other's white shirts, the bright stain of crimson on their shirts was shocking to me, as was the phenomenon of, the of, of you know, people rushing to where the fight was going to take place often across the street uh, in some vacant lot or something. And, uh, one day, one, one evening, I attended one of the dances in uh, ninth grade. So I'm, I guess what, I'm, I'm 14, 15 years old. And uh, someone, a boy I didn't know very well, quiet boy, but in classes with me, I, I learned later that, that uh, he was exiting the, school, the, the, the door after a dance, a school dance, and got into some kind of altercation with another guy that I knew only mostly by reputation, uh, who was older and, and said to be crazy. Um, and, uh, uh, they got into some kind of altercation. And what happened was that, uh, he was knocked to the ground and kicked to death after this dance. And I remember thinking, um, at the time that, you know, that was sort of the last straw for me. I was over my head. I, I, I hadn't been exposed, like I said, to too much male violence, but this was extreme. And I think that it, uh, I recognized that, you know, I probably didn't have to deal with this. And I could I could transfer out of that school, find a co-ed school and go to a different environment. And I did that and, and did it happily. But, you know, that was sort of the, um, that was the, the uh, most severe introduction to violence that actually was everywhere. I mean, you know, I remember being at, you know, swim club parties in the summer and gang fights starting. Um, I would sit at at, at my lunch table with boys that uh, came from the same part of town that the guy that was said to be crazy came from. They would talk about having had a gang fight with another gang. I was transferring schools from that boy's school to the co-ed Catholic school and had the brilliant idea of having a party in the basement of my home. And I invited guys from both schools, not, you know, not, not being very aware. And what ended up happening was it turns out that there were guys from two rival gangs at my party and they got into a fight, <laughs> in, you know, in, 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 in my house. Um, so, you know, there was a whole way in which I think that, uh, male violence was something that I was spared except it was everywhere. Mm. Sort of an odd contrast, really, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm, I mean, it's interesting also because the, you know, depending on where you live and where you've been brought up these days, you have varying levels of exposure to that level of just pervasive and persistent violence, I think. Yeah, the way you're describing it is it just being all around you. It seems like for you, it was just this experience that you almost couldn't step out of.
1: Yeah. You know, I I actually think Jonathan, that, that um, even, even, I mean, I, I, I spend time observing boys on playgrounds, for example, at schools. If you go across the street, you know, to the local school here and just happen to watch at lunchtime playground or something, what you'll see will be young boys jumping on each other, pushing each other, um, you know, stealing each other's toys or balls or whatnot. I do think that that, uh, you know, my two and a half year old grandson sometimes come home, comes home from preschool and says that, you know, his buddy, you know, rah, rah, you know, pushed him that day. I mean, I think that I I really do think that the piece that you 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 reference is a uh, I I talked about the ubiquity of male violence. I I do
0: think that our lives are steeped in violence. It's everywhere, Mm. which is kind of a scary reality to own. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. to a certain extent and, and I guess one of the things that I know you know you explore and, and have um researched and, and and write about most recent work also is the idea of where this comes from Yeah, because you know, I think there are a lot of myths there are a lot of sort of cultural overlays there are a lot of assumptions there are a lot of boys are x way and and this is just this, like there are certain there are certain you know, like, dna level elements of masculinity and this is just how they behave or how they act and it's not entirely true
1: yeah no i think that the stereotypes uh what what uh one writer calls the archetypes Mm. uh male archetypes just obscure our our ability to see boys clearly and one of those archetypes is this one you know the one you're referring to this idea that we are near feral creatures driven by hormones and by aggressiveness and competition, that violence is somehow woven into the fabric of our beings instead of being culturally conditioned. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I say a lot in talks I give to parents and so forth that we no longer say that biology is destiny when it comes to females, but it's still likely that we believe that male Biological anatomical differences are determinative for us. Um, you know, yes, there might there are some some uh, uh, predispositions to maybe more competition and aggressiveness, but that doesn't mean that our minds can't trump those those biological inclinations in the ways that 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 society requires of 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 all of us. And I think that uh, you know, boys are not by nature violent for sure it's hurt people who hurt people and when we violate boys fundamental natures in the ways that boyhood does we are going to have outcomes that are uh, in a certain sense uh, against our natures you know the 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 breakdown of empathic connections the breakdown of of compassion for other people the blind acting out of aggression that you see on playgrounds you know in the competition for dominance and hierarchy i think that that's those are signals that something's out of whack with boyhood that we're violating boys you know the restraining uh force of boys connections to other people
0: yeah i mean it's interesting that you say that uh, because I think for a lot of people the assumption is, well, that is the nature of boyhood. Right. Yeah, you know, um, and 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 that, that that's sort of like what, what you quote, have to move through in order to then discover your limits, discover your values, discover all this thing, and that's that just that's just the way it is. And what your argument is, no, in fact, you know, like if if that is how we're defining boyhood, then then that's yeah, it's a broken paradigm.
1: Yeah, I, I am saying it's a broken paradigm. And I'm saying more than that, I think it's a, a paradigm that breaks boys mm. and that the kinds of developmental outcomes that we see as products of boyhood, I, I say routine casualties are an inconvenient truth about boyhood. For generations, we have normalized uh, losses and casualties, not just losses of life, um, as in you know, my classmates' uh, example, but losses of virtue, losses of educational opportunity, losses of health, losses of intimate connection. I think that we've normalized uh, the, the sacrifices that we impose on boys for generations. In fact, what I say is that this is, the I think, the best time in human history to be raising a son because we're finally, I think, coming to terms with the boyhood that we've we've created and managed for boys for generations.
0: Yeah, I mean it does certainly seem like a, a time of reckoning. Um, mm-hmm. but in a good way, you know. <laughs> well both, it's a time both, of both the calling back, out yeah. and
1: a, a a closer scrutiny of the kind of the the assumptions we've made. Yeah, And one of those assumptions is that just boys will be boys, you know, that we're just hormonally driven creatures and can't help ourselves. You know, we're sexually predatory and violent and, you know, indisposed to invest in education and learning and not really very capable of emotional expression or intimacy. Those kinds of, of rationalizations, I think, are being called out in the reckoning you're describing.
0: Yeah. What are if I mean if we try and deconstruct some of those things, I think you sort of just listed out four or so of the really big assumptions. What are the truths underlying those?
1: Well, let's let's begin with the most fundamental truth, you know, which is that human minds are wired to connect. We are creatures, human beings that have a certain hardwired nature. And that nature, it's 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 anatomical, it's built into our brains. Um, requires us to be uh, nurtured in close synchrony with other human beings. Children require emotional uh, uh, and, and um, you know, the, the presence of an adult in order to really flourish. We, we need to feel known and loved um, in order to uh, not feel scared and alone. And, uh, you know, too much of boyhood is has been about pushing boys out of the nest at an at a way too early age not in any sense of their choosing um, but but really in service to the message you know that a, a real boy a true boy stands on his own two feet and aspires to be the lone ranger um, so that 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 fundamental violation of of male nature is, is how I explain a lot of the negative outcomes we're seeing
0: yeah um, and I guess so I, you know what is is what drives that that impulse the bigger societal construct about what what boys do and don't need and what they quote should become
1: Yeah well, well for sure the, the bigger societal construct, I think that uh, uh, there's a lot of hope, that that's changing, and there are signs of it's changing for sure. But I'm also struck by the, the continuity, the overarching uh, perpetuation of those stereotypes. In fact, even the exaggeration of those stereotypes. You go into a toy store and everything's you know blue and pink. For example, G.I. Joe has gained 20% more muscle mass over the last 20 years. Mm. I think that as we approach more gender equality as a society... Uh, I'm seeing kind of on a throwback, you know, last hurrah way, this this uh, emphasis on traditional masculine tropes. And so I, I believe our sons are going to have to contend with that, at least for this next generation or, or more. And consequently, I don't think that we can protect our sons from those tropes. I think what we can do is build their resistance to them.
0: Hmm when we think about raising boys now and we think about like the different people who influence, um, their behavior currently and, and who we hope they become. Um, you know, one of the things that I know you talk about is sort of like the, the different, the different people along the way, you know? Um, so, so parents are certainly, you know, like one of that. And when you think about, uh, a parent, do you find that there's a, that, that, Fathers and mothers relate differently, has, have different expectations. And if so, does that then lead to different behaviors and outcomes and, and, and then if, if that's true, what do we do about it? Right. No, it's, a, it's an important question
1: uh, for sure. I think uh, historically we have believed that it takes a man to raise a boy to manhood you know, as if we are going to uh, initiate our sons into the secret fraternity of being a man. And consequently, that impacts both fathers and mothers differently. For fathers, I think there's this idea that we need to teach our boys how to be men, and we need to pass along to them some of the secrets of masculinity. I tell a story in my book uh, about, uh, unwittingly, uh, finding myself in the grip of of one such uh, uh, idea with my son who was being bullied at a, at a playground down the corner. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, 20 years into the project of examining my own masculinity and coming to terms with what was unhealthy about it. And still I found myself when my son was being, you know, bullied and threatened by mean boys, I found myself drawing upon some old tropes, you know, you got to fight for yourself, you got to be strong. And I think we all do that. I think that there is a way in which we men, we fathers feel like we have an inside track on what manhood is about, and we have to teach that to our sons in order to prepare them for it. Mothers, on the other hand, get a parallel message that they don't know how to raise a boy to manhood, and that in fact, if they try to keep their son close, uh, they risk spoiling him, undermining his masculine independence, turning him into a mama's boy. And what we find, you know, happens behind that sort of cultural demand is that moms begin to doubt themselves and pull away from their sons. And the net effect of that is that the boy, uh, uh, doesn't have that kind of emotional synchrony or connection that he needs in order to flourish. We think, you know, overall, we think that we have to help our sons be strong, not understanding that strength comes not from disconnection and independence, but from deep connection.
0: Yeah, that's big.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's di- and different.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it sounds like also, you know, like a a, a father figure, would translate what that attachment or connection means differently than a mother. And also I, I, I wonder also if it's important to to, in the context of this conversation, to tease out father versus father figure and mother versus mother figure mm. and gender identifying around their role identifications because we certainly see, you know the average family today, can look very different than right. what the average family looked like a couple of generations ago.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I don't know that in talking, I mean, so I'm asked a lot, you know, you know single moms, for example, yeah. will often ask me, you know, uh, there's no men in my my son's life and is that a problem for him? And what I say about that is that it's certainly helpful to a boy to be around adult men, but not for the reasons that I think The cultural tropes hold, you know, not because that boy needs to be somehow introduced to masculinity by an adult man, but more getting to actually rub shoulders with a man, getting to see him in a human light, getting to see how he brushes his teeth, how he shaves his face, how he or not, you know, how he he cares for uh, the world and for himself, demythologizes masculinity. One of the things that research teaches us is that in the absence of a male figure, boys often default to a hyper-masculine stereotype. In the absence of real flesh and blood content, the myth, these cultural myths that we've been talking about, I think seem truer. A boy that's rubbing elbows with men gets to see that, "Eh, you know, not so much. Yeah, so it's almost like if you're...
0: Yeah, you know, reading books and seeing movies and watching TV, exactly. and this is what's being shown. Yeah, you just th- that's what you think it it is. That, where, that's reality, that's right, right? The day to day foibles and complexity and falling Moans, down, and right. nuance. That's yep. right. Yep. that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, when when we we sort of move beyond the influence of parents. Um, in this experience of boyhood. I know one of the things that you've really, you know, spent a huge amount of time exploring right. is education. That's right. Is the role of the school environment and teachers in this. Talk to me a bit about that relational um, yeah. experience and yeah. how, how that There's works. There's
1: a lot to say about yeah. that, Jonathan. It's not and, and teachers and coaches, if I can just insert yeah. that. Thank you. Um, yeah. So so um, that's where I've, I've conducted three global studies and I... I Conducted the studies the way I conducted them because uh, working in schools back in the early 90s, I was struck by the the mythology about boys' education that wasn't producing very good outcomes. Um, you know, all this drama about boys falling behind, boys failing in school, all of this rationalization about why it was true: boys are just not cut out for education; they can't sit still. Too many female teachers, a lot of ideological myths as explanations. And, and yet, what we knew was that in some schools, everywhere, some boys were flourishing. So, we decided to build a theory of boys' education phenomenologically from the ground up. And we started with 18 schools, 1,500 boys aged 12 to 18, uh, and 1,000 of their teachers in six different countries. And we asked a simple question in an online survey followed up with focus groups. We asked, what's working? Mm. And from that, we heard three major themes. The third of which, lots of overlap between what the boys and the teachers said, which gave us some reason to think it was true. But the third theme, overarching theme, came from the boys themselves, not from the teachers. And what the boys said essentially was that they were relational learners, that that the most important feature uh, that engaged them in learning was the connection that they had with a teacher or a coach. Now, what was so surprising about that finding was that my research partner and I, between us, had about 50 years working with boys, and we were caught off guard. (laughs) <laughs> it's the best kind of research. You know, <laughs> discovery. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do, right? And and moreover, the thousand teachers who were in the trenches with these boys when asked what works didn't talk about their relationship with their students. They talked in technical detail about the lesson they'd crafted and how it fit this or that or this other theory of learning. Boys, on the other hand, were very, very detailed as they talked about the personality, the mood, the teaching style of the teacher. And, uh, you know, we were really led to that conclusion that boys are relational learners by the boys themselves. And we had to confront this fact that we were all operating, all of the adults were operating in a bit of a fog about how relational boys were. were, So that launched another study, a, a second study where we really dug into, you know, what kind of relationships work and what kind of relationships don't work. And that we doubled the number of schools to 34, six different countries, another 1500 boys and a thousand teachers. And we were able to describe the features of relational approaches that really worked, succeeded in engaging boys and the kinds of explanations that boys offered, teachers understood, uh, to explain why relationships break down and then some sense of what needs to be done about it. Because the truth is that every kind of relationship, including teaching and coaching relationships, cycles routinely through periods of connection, disconnection, reconnection, your relationship with your partner or your yeah, child. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and the problem is that many schools are not set up very well to prioritize the relationship, the emotional labor for a teacher of managing, making sure that they have a connection with their students, fixing relationships that are broken down, continuing to try if, you know, if all the different tricks in their bag, you know, uh, are exhausted. I think that that What we learned was the job of being the relationship manager falls by default to the teacher. And yet many teachers don't feel particularly supported in that work uh, by the setup of the school. And here we are saying that boys are relational learners. And in the absence of a relational connection with their teacher, they have a much harder time engaging. You know, what we say is it's not what a boy you is, know, is, is is being taught. It's for whom
0: he'll 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 work hmm. that matters. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because if you think about the way that so many schools have become structured these days, um, classroom sizes are getting larger. That's right. The educational paradigm very often is you know like the, the quote, "teaching to the test." So you're it's largely curriculum driven rather than relationship driven. Right. It's it's more and more fixed in what's being delivered. Um, and it's interesting because we, you know, we have a number of friends that, that have been teachers for a long time and they don't like it. No. <laughs> they. I, I think if you talk to a lot of teachers, they would actually love to to be in a much more relational style with their students, boys and girls. Um, but they feel like the structure that's sort of like being built these days, to, It it's not only that it doesn't allow, it almost punishes it.
1: Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, our research really confirmed that. You know, the, the the folks that are attracted to the teaching profession begin, I think, that career path with the greatest idealism. They're in it to to transform lives, to lift children up, to help them succeed. And I I agree. I think the structure of education has moved away from uh, uh, a setup that really uh, allows teachers to experience the rewards of, of, you know, it still happens, but it's, it's become almost uh, relegated to the margins of what they're required to do. And, and here's our research saying essentially that boys in general and particularly disadvantaged boys, boys that are also fighting other social stresses like racism or poverty require a, a, some kind of connection some sense of being known and valued for who they are in order to engage
0: So my wife, Stephanie, swears by 3rd Love bras. And here is what I know. Since Stephanie started wearing 3rd Love, I never hear her talk about how uncomfortable she is or how the straps are pulling on her shoulders or giving her headaches anymore because 3rd Love bras are the most comfortable she has ever worn. And it actually makes sense because they do something pretty remarkable. 3rd Love taps the insights generated by millions of women who've taken their Fit Finder quiz to design bras with perfect fit and premium feel in a way that almost nobody else can. you take the Fit Finder quiz, answer a few simple questions that let them find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. More than 12 million women have taken this quiz so far. Stephanie actually started sharing the Fit Finder quiz with all of her friends and all of the women in her family because it was fast and fun and it really got her thinking about what she does and doesn't want in a bra. Plus, you'll have 60 days to wear your new bra, to wash it, put it to the test and if you don't love it return it to third love and they will wash it and donate it to a woman in need so you got to love that third love knows there is a perfect bra for everyone so right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order go to thirdlove.com/goodlife now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase that's thirdlove.com/goodlife for 15% off today or just click the link in the show notes I know your research focused largely on boys. Um, Has there been similar research done on girls and is it substantially different that you know about if so?
1: I have partners of mine in my center uh, based at Penn conducted a parallel study with girls. And they found that indeed girls are also relational learners. What we think is that human beings are relational generally. Um, but that the contours of the relationships and the different approaches, I think, are really uh, fitted to gendered differences. You know, there's particular ways that boys can connect because of their experience of being gendered and likewise girls. I think there's probably overlap there too, hmm. um, but it's useful for teachers, for all of us, I think, to understand, parents and teachers and coaches, to understand that, Gender matters, that boys are being gendered from the time they're conceived.
0: Tell, tell me what you mean by that, boy, boys are being gendered.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I tell the story in a book about a friend of mine who had, uh, who was pregnant and carrying twins. She's a biology teacher. And, and uh, she knew that one was a boy and one was a girl. And she said, I know which one's the boy. I said, how do you know? She said, he's the one who kicks me. From the time a boy is 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 uh, you know uh, born, we are clothing them. We are providing different toys to them. We are making assumptions about them, seeing them in a different light, filtering how they how we interpret who they are, in terms of the gender assumptions that we're carrying unconsciously in our minds.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it starts from pre birth. Yeah, that's right. From from the
1: Uh, idea of a child, I think, you know?
0: Yeah, and and I guess, you know, I think one of the eye-opening things for me has been uh, the notion that um, that may be causing harm, you know, whereas like instead of just, that's the way it is, you know, like that's we all sort of like, we all have fun guessing and we all start to like, you know, we wanna know, the gender as soon as we can, you know, as like soon as we can find out, you know, very often months before mm-hmm. child is born and then start to plan for that. You know, it's, it's interesting for me to, to start to ask the questions, um, like what were the assumptions that I made and what were the decisions that I made from the earliest days based on, you know, like knowing what my child's gender would be even before they came here. And again, we're not even addressing the more recent recognition of the difference between biological and, you know, like, uh, you know, like, felt identity, which is a whole, I think, separate conversation. Right. But the fact that, you know, the thousands of seemingly small and innocuous choices we might make in relation to, to that, that gender, can have a profound effect on how the gender is or isn't expressed. It's
1: profound indeed, and that's what I would say in asserting the premise that children are relational what i'm actually saying is that our brains are structured in such a way that i i feel you i read you you don't even have to utter words i'm feeling and reading you you know what we call attunement you know my reptilian brain and yours are speaking to each other all the time children are remarkably astute at picking up adult signals and, and, and what happens is they lean into those signals. They wrap themselves around those messages that they're receiving from us, and they internalize them. We are having a profound effect on our children in ways that we fail, I think, often to recognize. So much of my clinical work is actually helping parents to notice the power that they have. Uh, often parents feel powerless with boys boys who have become really stubborn or resistant or withdrawn or acting out parents often feel powerless with boys and usually what I have to do is help to help parents to notice that they're beating their son with a club and to step back appreciate how much their sons are feeling them and use that power, that influence more strategically, more sensitively.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder what happens also when you have a child who who does not conform to the gender expectations of the parents, um, <laughs> and they're comfortable not conforming, you know, but the parents aren't. The parents are like, yeah, yeah. this is the way you're supposed to be in the world, and the kid is saying, you're like, no, 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 actually, I get that. That's what you think. And I get that's maybe what a lot of society thinks, but I'm okay not being that way. Yeah. Um, And how sometimes like we as parents will want a certain behavior and, and like a child to step into a certain identity almost because of the way we feel it's going to reflect back on us and maybe out of concern for how we think our child is going to have a harder or easier time as they move through their life. Right.
1: You know, it's as if we parents, you know, no matter how old we are, we think that we can read the opportunity structures that are, that are actually in play for, you know, children that are, you know, what, 20, 30, 40 years younger than us. It's a remarkable arrogance or blindness. The truth is that children are in the best position to read what, uh, what, what the realities of, their, of, the, of the context that they're living in. And our job is not to um, uh, put upon them some set of expectations for how they should act. That's, a, that's doomed to fail. Because if we simply uh, expect one generation to reproduce the, the features of the previous generation, they're not going to be very well adapted to the opportunities of a very changing world. What we know about the present world is that the gender landscape has changed dramatically. And our boys are being asked in a Me Too moment to adapt to radically different structures in marriages and workplaces in terms of their own identities. As you're saying, the fluidity of identity is probably one of the more striking features today. And our sons know that much better than we do. So if we simply try to teach them, you know, or, or or put upon them expectations for how they should be, because if they stray from a certain bandwidth, it makes us uncomfortable. And um, what we're doing in some ways is handicapping our sons. We're actually interfering with their successful adaptation to the present. And I'm not talking, I'm not, I'm not touting, you know, this, this idea that, that, uh, you know, of a fad or children should be, you know. Uh, adopting whatever you know uh, cultural currents indicate. I don't think that's true. I think the best way we can equip our sons to make uh, principled moral judgments about how they want to be uh, is to strengthen our connections with them, strengthen their connection to themselves and, and equip them with that kind of confidence so that they can determine for themselves how to hold on to who they want to be.
0: I mean, it seems like an argument to to if you're going to focus on on one thing to to step away from trying to shape the gender identity of a child and step more into shaping or offering inviting a child to explore the fundamental values and character, um, regardless of you know and and let that take the lead. (laughs) You know, like and it's almost like they'll figure out. Where they fall um, in the context of defining gender and and how they interact in that way
1: and and that field of character education is one that's also fraught with with a lot of myths. yeah,
0: tell me about that
1: <laughs> you know we we, we we still have, I think a lot of uh, folks who believe that the way you teach you build character is by teaching and preaching. Mm a set of virtues and values as if you know these are going to be foreign to these feral creatures and we need to we need to fit them into right, these character boxes then. yeah exactly <laughs> you know upload these these virtues right, and right. values and the truth really is i think that that uh, what we know about the science of character education is it begins with the experience of feeling cared for mm. and that's how we learn to care about other folks and you know morality is rooted in empathy. It's rooted in actually caring about how our behavior affects others. Operating with integrity, being honest, being empathic, being compassionate. These are virtues that are rooted in uh, our being able to feel other people. And we have to have experienced having that kind of relationship with somebody else in order to develop that, I think. Or I think, or I think it gets
0: underdeveloped, or perhaps even uh, blunted. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, and also if you think about, like, we have one child who's about to head off to college, which is going to be a whole different world for us. <laughs> You're about to go through that yeah, separation, right. yeah. Um, you know, and and when I think about, you know, there's, I don't think there's ever anything that I could have said um, that would shape the way that she, that she has created her own values. But I do know that no matter what i say you know as as you said from the earliest of years she was a keen observer of my behavior yeah you know and she would see how i treat other people how i treat my wife how i interact with colleagues with friends with my parents with my siblings and with complete strangers on the street and you know when it, when i think about character like like you were saying it's less about okay let, let's talk about you know like the the values that are deeply meaningful and that you should adopt to become a good, fully formed human being. It's like almost, you know, I think it almost, it's worse if I say that and then I behave differently in the world and she sees that in me right. because then it's like, there's this cognitive dissonance which just yeah, makes hypocrisy. it all fall apart.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I think that, that it's, and, and you know, as I said, I think it begins in in your relationship with her and yeah. what she experiences of you in that relationship. If you're honest, if you're consistent, if you're dependable, if you uh, exhibit uh, a capacity to care for her, even when it's difficult or inconvenient for you, she's going to absorb those those moral lessons and she's going to internalize those. They will become a part of how she understands one relates to other people.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, moving beyond the role of a parent in sort of helping shape <laughs> a boy. One of the other things that you explore a lot is, um, and, and it kind of relates back to this earlier thing that you shared, which is that we are we are wired to connect the sense of belonging, like with physiological, psychological need, it feels like it's beyond a yearning, but an actual need to belong in some way, shape or form. And part of that comes from our peers, from who we surround ourselves with. Mm. Um, you know, and which brings up this this whole thing, which is, you know, like, how do we get our kids to be surrounded by a group of people, you know, that would help them become good human beings? Or is that the wrong question? It, it, is that actually not our job? It's like our job to just step back and, and trust that they'll figure it out.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a common worry, isn't yeah. it, with boys in particular that uh, and, and what we're worrying about is the bro culture that yeah. that, that that you know exists everywhere you know, the idea that there's a, a lowered common denominator, a hyper-masculine common denominator that our boys will be exposed to somehow pressured by and pulled away from themselves. And there's certainly a lot of examples of that, uh, everywhere. I'm sure you were exposed to that. I was too. And, you know, I think that, uh, uh, I don't, but I I would agree with your question or the rewording of your question. I, you know, I, I think that we do want to be vigilant and not just in terms of our children's choice of friends, but just in general, vigilant. But, but when it comes to who they're hanging out with, you know, that, that, that notion that you are who you're, you know, who you're with, who you're hanging out with, it, it does reflect something, uh, in a child's of, of a child's you know, value orientation. Um, but I don't think the parent who is, who's determined to regulate his child's or child's choice of friends is going to have much luck there. If they're successful, I, I think they're more likely to have, uh, uh, created a, a dependency, uh, you know, a, a child who, who's gotten the message that he has to conform to his parents' wishes and, have a much harder time becoming an independent-minded person. So I think that, that our job in some ways is to help our sons navigate that peer culture, which is ubiquitous, it's everywhere, and make principled decisions about who he wants to be in the context of that. There's a lot of things about the brotherhood that are really kind of fun and thrilling. And, and yet uh, way across a line in, in many other ways. And I think that a boy who's trying to navigate that is likely to make, you know, do, almost do it on trial and error basis, you know, try this and try that. And I think that uh, he's in the best position to make the choices. If we have confidence that he has a hold of himself and that he's connected to us, he's able to talk about the kinds of pressures he's experiencing if he's able to talk about the kinds of mistakes he's making, mm. we're in a better position to be what we call a steering mechanism to guide him through those difficult passages.
0: Yeah, and which also ties into um, you know, an area of focus for you, which is how boys and men um, eventually experience and express um, love, affection, and are willing to step into a place of vulnerability, which you know classically, has been seen as weakness. And now I think in the popular culture, um, you know, we've seen a lot of that shifting. We've seen the work of Brene Brown that's going out into the world. But I still think very often people associate the work of people like that with um, still almost like a, a feminine way of being, right. which I think is completely wrong, but curious how, because it seems like th- this is sort of, you know what you're talking about is essentially a willingness to be vulnerable and still understand that that is complete and acceptable and maybe even a deeply valuable part of being a boy, being a man.
1: Yeah. You know, I feel like this is an area that I have um, a lot of good news to bring, (laughs) bring in from the field. I have led for 25 years, a a program at a boy's school outside of Philadelphia uh, that we call peer counseling, but is essentially an emotional literacy program. And it's an, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, an effort to provide a space for boys to practice expressing, uh, coding feelings with language and expressing those feelings so that they don't lose that ability that we're all born with. And boys, what we know from research, get many, many, many fewer opportunities to practice that language so that they come into intimate relationships later in life with what one researcher calls communications awkwardness. They're just unfamiliar with the territory. It's like, I don't know what I feel. I don't have any words for that. You know, it's just a thing. I feel, you know, that kind of thing. So what, what I've done for the last 25 years is provided this opportunity in a peer counseling uh, format for boys simply to, to exchange turns listening to each other. And uh, I try to prime the uh, meetings with a topic that I believe is of interest to them. And so we talk a little bit about relationships with each other, relationships with girls, relationships with parents. We talk about sex. We talk about pornography. And I'll provide just a little bit of an overview and send them off to talk to each other and then bring them back. And typically what I do in the final half hour or so of the meeting is I'll work with one boy. So one guy, 17, 18 years old, 40, 50 other boys listening to him. Hmm. And I'll just simply ask him, you know, so how's this topic resonate for you? The good news I'm bringing is I have not found boys unable to do this. In fact, just the opposite. What's surprising, what what has really blown me away is that they, they they're not having those opportunities anywhere else. I meet with them once every other week. And what they're saying is that this is it for them. This is the only place that they can really... We had one boy, for example, t- talk about his mom dying and he is going to the cemetery and setting up a folding chair by the grave. And no one in school knew that. Mm. Um, you know The extent to which boys keep things to themselves, not because they don't wanna be vulnerable, but because there's no opportunity, there's no place, there's no relationship built for them, uh, available to them, to be honest like that, all we've done in this program is simply built it, and they come. You know, we just simply gather boys together, we legitimize what we're doing, we model it, and and they fit themselves to it wholeheartedly. It's been very encouraging to me. And, and the other bit of good news here is that I have seen this transition from maybe 25 years ago where it was harder. It was such a countercultural uh, program to one that the boys are now calling the best program in the school. Mm. They talk about getting a high just from a five minute turn talking to someone honestly about some struggle that they're having. They feel so much lighter, so much less alone. So in terms of coding language with feelings and coding feelings with language in terms of being able to express themselves, what we know in terms of the uh, research on emotional development is that it's not the experience of emotions that, that distinguishes boys and girls. It's the expression. And the expression follows societal feeling rules that we're in charge of, not the boys. If we change those rules, if we legitimize for boys that of course you have feelings, and of course you have to talk to somebody about them. They understand that, they're ready, they're game.
0: Yeah, it's more about opportunity than capacity. That's exactly uh, right. And
1: and we have to, we, the adults who were in charge of boyhood
0: have to build those opportunities for our boys. So long before Everlane was actually one of our sponsors, I was a fan. In fact, I think it was my daughter who first brought them to my attention. And not just because Everlane is a stand-up company, but because they have great clothes. So Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. And I love that Everlane tells you their real costs and they're radically transparent about every step in their process. From the materials they use to the ethical factories that they work with, and because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. So no matter your style or preference, Everlane's clothes, they just look better. They cost less. They feel great. They last longer. Our daughter is heading off to college and we just got her a ton, a massive box of really beautiful, super yummy clothes from Everlane to bring to school, including these really super cool rain boots, slacks, t-shirts, pants, this Spanish clay cotton crew neck sweater thing, which looks awesome. and she. Loves and of course, I snuck in a few cotton crew tees into the order as well. And right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com goodlife. Plus, you will get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com goodlife, everlane.com goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes. It seems one of the things that you were really successful in doing also in the the context you were just describing was creating a believable experience of safety. And and I wonder sometimes whether that's that's hard to find out there in the real world. And without that, you know, to me, I've always believed that safety is a precursor to openness and vulnerability. Absolutely, and what,
1: <laughs> what person, much less a boy is going to risk being humiliated yeah. or, or teased or razzed? I mean, you know. Right.
0: And especially in these days, right? And we should probably touch on this too, because I think it's important. You know, when something that you say, you know, a generation ago, you say it in a room and you make, you know, somebody make razz you or make fun of you in the moment. And then 10 minutes later, it's gone forever. These days, you know, everything you do Lives and say on. is captured yeah. in yeah, technology, yeah. Yeah. and it's just out there, and it's you know, it propagates to thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people in the blink of an eye. So it, I almost wonder if if the fear of that ripple mm. um, creates it's pressure, more exaggerated. yeah, and, yeah. And, and creates pressure not to actually be open.
1: So the 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 the, the guideline that we establish that in 25 years, Jonathan, I've actually never heard rumor of being violated is a guideline of confidentiality. You know, basically, I'm not going to talk about what you've talked to me about. I don't have any rights to what you've shared. Only you can bring that up again. And boys understand it, and they observe it as a matter of honor. And as really as a matter of, uh, you know, You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We're in this together, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, It's amazing that that's been upheld for so, so especially given the last five years of technology.
1: Yep. Yeah, I think they really understand that if that were to be in question, the whole opportunity would be lost.
0: Right, and they value it so much. And it's in
1: their self-interest to preserve
0: that. Yeah. The other thing that tends to happen with technology while we're on that topic is you know, you were talking about the importance of empathy and um, you know, over the years I have had a chance to see some of the research on what happens to empathy when a lot of our conversations and relationships have a screen between us Mm. and it's not a good thing. Mm. Um, Have you seen that or have you done research? How do you see that playing out in the context of how boys do and don't relate and develop?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, so what I would, what I would agree with you about is that boys, kids today, your son or your daughter, uh, they are living in a digital world that is part of the architecture of the boyhood that we've created. Our, you know, our, our video games and our pornographic videos and our social media platforms have created a, an architecture that, that our, our children inhabit. And the features of that architecture are not ones that are being designed by human development specialists. So that, you know, in this, in this peer counseling program, for example, I cover the topic of pornography. And I ask the boys, just a show of hands, how many of you uh, access pornography? Everybody raises their hand. How many of you, you know, what age did you begin accessing it? Twelve years old. And does it have an effect on you? Hands go up. Is it a positive effect or a negative effect? They know it's a negative effect. They talk openly about the ways that it shapes, not just their expectations about sexuality, but about their expectations about bodies, including their own body. The, the uh, growing self-consciousness of boys about their bodies is one of the ways I, which I think this generation is is being affected by, by this, this technology. So, you know, I think that uh, I see a lot of boys, you know, what we know about, uh, for example, the the gamer stereotype and the idea that boys have, you know, that this is a space that's built for them. And one of the, I'm about to become involved in a project called a boyhood campaign launched by an NGO in DC that's going to analyze uh, the images uh, uh, the messages that boys are getting from the images about boys and girls in video games and uh, uh, other other digital media, I think what we'll find is that the stereotypes are are you know
0: remarkable. Yeah, uh, I think we're in a time where also um, I feel like we're in a time with all of this where there are more questions than answers right now, <laughs> and things are moving so quickly. It's like I think fundamental human nature. Hasn't really changed, but like you said, the things that you know, whether it's porn or texting or Instagram, you know, the technology is is being designed by people who are really good um, technologists who build, you know, to essentially reinforce addictive behavior. Yeah, and I would agree with that. That can have some not great results there. Well, here's the here's
1: the good news. Yeah, I think that, and, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like, I feel like, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I, I, there's a lot of alarm yeah. out there in the, in the parent community about, about the impact of technology on our kids to a point where I think parents are almost paranoid. Mm. You know, I, and I think we, we correctly perceive that we've lost a certain measure of control and that, that it's not necessarily, uh, things are not necessarily going in a good direction. I, I agree with all of that. And yet, I think the alarmism is is um, I think it's it's uh, misleading. You know, one of my clinical specialties is dependency treatment, addiction treatment, and what I know from you know being steeped in that world, in the research and the treatment fields, are uh, is that disconnection precedes addiction. So, if you want to uh, strengthen your Daughter, your son, against the pull of these very addictive technologies, it's really the same general direction uh, as uh, helping and helping strengthen them against peer culture generally, or uh, other other addictive agents like alcohol or you know exploitative sex. The thing to do is to deepen your connection to them yourself. I mean, what I say is. If you want your son to hold on to himself, hold on to them yourself. Mm, that's powerful. You know I think that the stronger the connection, the more your child is rooted in uh, a, a sense of being connected, a relational anchor. The more accountable they're going to feel, the more influence they're going to feel, the more uh, uh, they're going to feel known, and loved and be less pulled by those kinds of addictive uh,
0: uh, seductions. It seems like everything keeps circling back to that. Well, there's a reason. I yeah. got, you know the
1: subtitle <laughs> right. of my book is The Power of Connection for right. Good Men.
0: Yeah, it's inter- interesting too for me to see what's happening now for adult men, which is that I'm seeing increasingly um, men's groups at scale. Where where the focus isn't bowling, the focus isn't. It's not a league. It's not an like met. It's not about getting together to do X, Y, or Z activity. Mm. It's about getting together in a safe space to talk about what it is to be a man in the world today, and ask questions that you're terrified to ask in public, and in you know, like stand there in your own feelings, your own vulnerability, your own ignorance, your own power, your own assumptions, your own beliefs. And be able to share that and explore, and it's interesting you know, how I, I am seeing groups like that um, more and more these days. And I almost wonder whether that is now the a blend of what's happening in the population of men realizing, like, wow, you know, what got us here ain't going to get us there we all need to like, mm. really re-examine who mm. we are, how we behave, mm. the decisions we make and, and how we stand in our identities. And also realizing simultaneously, we don't necessarily feel like we have a safe place to do this. right? And then yearning for and creating these spaces. Um, so it's interesting to see that happen as well.
1: Some of the research that's been really interesting to me, more good news, yeah. um, is that men now, younger men now care more about their mental health than their physical health. I think young men get it. I mean, I know that's true for these 18, 16, 17, 18-year-olds that I'm seeing in this high school program. They understand that being at peace with themselves makes a happier life, and they want that. I think that's the kind of opportunity we're creating in this disruption that we're going through. You know, traditional masculinity was called out, has been disrupted, and the blind you know, intergenerational reproduction has sort of been interrupted. And we're in a position where we're getting to reinvent boyhood. And I think one of the ways we're reinventing it is to recognize boys as emotional, relational creatures and providing for it. And they're claiming the right for that.
0: Yeah, that is more good news. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle. So name this is a good life project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up?
1: I think that uh, I would just have to conclude with, the th- with what I said before, you know, that, that, that the privilege of loving a boy uh, involves knowing him and keeping him close. Uh, not, not, not requiring him to fit himself to our wheelhouse, but following his lead and going where his mind goes, really backing him to,
0: you know, to live, live large. Mm, thank you. <laughs>